0: Radio shows you love from the people you know. This is Sam
1: Talks Technology. Hello and welcome Marlo. Welcome to the web. How are we? It's Wednesday. It's Sam Sethi here again on Marlowe FM and I've got a brilliant guest with me today. His name is Daniel Applequist. Let me tell you a little bit about Daniel. He currently is the Director of Web Advocacy for Samsung and their internet team. Uh, we'll be explaining a lot more about what Daniel does. I've known Daniel for over a decade now. Uh, he's worked for companies such as Vodafone, Telefonica. He's also worked closely with uh, the father of the web, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, in the W3C. So today's show is really going to be about finding out what Daniel's doing today, what he's done in the past and where he sees the web going in the future. I suppose you could sum it up as we're going to be talking about web 3.0, whether that's a good or a bad name to call it. Daniel, welcome. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for-, Thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for coming out to Marlowe. Now, Daniel, uh, in your own words, tell me, what do you
0: do? So what do I do? A lot. (laughs) Um, Job uh, wise. We'll stick to the job. Okay. (laughs) Um, As as you said, I am working for Samsung. Uh, I actually work for Samsung, part of Samsung, called Samsung Research UK, which is based uh, here uh, very close by, actually in Staines, UK. I am a web technologist, so I work on the technology side of things. Um, I'm leading a team which is doing developer relations, for samsung internet and what is samsung internet samsung internet is a browser it's a web browser that is based on chromium which is the same open source engine that google chrome is based on so if you're familiar with google chrome then basically samsung internet uh takes that underlying engine and we put our own ui and our own features on top of it so we actually think that we have a number of features which are better than what chrome is doing and um we Chromium is also an open source project. So we actually we actually contribute into the chromium project, and we open we contribute into a number of other open source projects having to do with web development. So as far as like, how I got here. Um, I am, as you also mentioned, I also work with Tim Berners Lee. Um, we call him, you know, Sir Tim. On, uh, <laughs> Do you bow every time you go uh, into the room. It's, uh yeah. I mean, I, he he asks us not to, right? You know. But, um, uh, so I co-chair with him and with another uh, guy named uh, Peter Linz. Uh, something called the technical architecture group within w3c w3c is the group called as uh, the full name of that is the world wide web consortium and it's a organization that was founded by sir tim in the mid 90s to be kind of a technical standards body for the underlying technologies of the web so html css things like that and the group that i chair is called the technical architecture group alongside of tim it's a appointment it's something that i was appointed to um by tim in i forget when 2013 something like that okay a while ago yeah and um basically we act as a steering board for web technologies so we do a, an awful lot of looking at other people's work and we review new technologies that are coming into the web platform now you might say well what's new about the web? I mean, we've got HTML, sur- surely, you know, that's it. What? In fact, there has never been a time in history when there have been more new technologies being introduced into the web platform. So it's extremely exciting. Give me an example. What, give me an example of something that might be new. So something like oh. web payment, for instance, which is oh, yeah, a, yeah. A, 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 a technology that allows the website to trigger a payment Experience that might be specific to your browser or specific to your device. So, say you are on a mobile phone because the majority of web usage is actually on mobile devices these days. So, we very much think of the web, especially from where I'm coming from, we think about the web as a mobile platform. Um, and you want to pay for something. Well, right now, in many cases, you have to pull out your credit card. You have to like type. Awkwardly type the credit card number into the phone while you're holding it and the credit card with another hand, and you might be on the train, you might be in a in some kind of other mobile context. Um, So it's quite awkward. And the idea of web payment is to basically allow the browser to to control that better, to store your credit card number, and to provide it back to the website in a very secure way Um, when the user wants it to be um, provided in that way when they actually want to pay for something or to allow access to an on-device payment technology such as Samsung Pay, Google Pay, Apple Pay. So these companies are all involved with that and the idea is to make payment a much more seamless enterprise or a much more seamless um, experience when it comes to using the web. Okay, Uh,
1: so so you oversee uh, new standards or potential standards that are being
0: proposed by... I guess independence as well as corporates yeah some in some cases independence in in many cases, a lot of these are coming from existing browser companies, so a lot of it comes out of the Google Chrome project um, there are a lot of other there are standards being proposed out of Microsoft, out of Apple, out of um, Mozilla as well, and other companies and organizations Samsung um, etc, that participate in in the web and that work happens in the W3C in an open standards way. All of that work, by the way, and one of the things that differentiates the web is that it is all of those standards are are built on a royalty-free basis. They're released on a royalty-free basis. So that means anybody who wants to develop a web browser can do so without having to worry about paying royalties to whoever developed the technology. That's something that Tim... And the other people who set up the W3C in the 90s and early 2000s were really keen on to make sure that we have a level playing field and that we can have new entrants into the into the web browser space more easily.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, one of the things I remember, I mean, maybe it's a lot quieter now, was when I was Netscape's product manager here in Europe, it was... Uh, The browser wars and the HTML wars and and Microsoft and and, and Netscape and many others were going, no, I want you to put ActiveX into the Mm -hmm. W3C. And no, you've got to ratify my standard because, you know, my standard is the next standard that needs to be. So how does the W3C? stay neutral when clearly you must have a lot of corporate pressure on companies saying "Yeah, mine's the standard we need to put forward
0: so one way in which W3C attempts to remain neutral is by providing a lot of transparency so everything, all of the development of these new technologies is done in the clear, um, in public so that anybody can come in even though, um, anybody can come in and comment on it, anybody can come in and cry foul or report in the press or um, so, so that can create a kind of, um, m- better, atmosphere. Another way in which uh, the W3C maintains that neutrality is by enforcing this royalty-free approach, right? So I've been in other, when I was at Vodafone, I was in other standards organizations where which weren't run on a royalty-free basis. And I can tell you the atmosphere in those standards organizations was a lot different because the emphasis from all parties was trying to get their patents. Um, embedded into whatever the standard was going to be so that they could make money off of the royalties. Well, because that pressure is off in most web standards, and it's not only W3C that enforces a, w, uh, a royalty-free policy, but um, also the places where JavaScript are standardized and in ECMA, and where uh, other uh, uh, web st- other related web standards also all have a kind of um, royalty-free approach, uh, it takes the pressure off, and it, and it makes things a lot more even. Um, however, there is always that uh, issue of how many people, how many engineers can, and how much money can each company that's participating um, uh, field. How, how much money can they spend? How, much, uh, how many people do they have that they can actually how, you know what team can they field? Very, very uh, literally. And if you go to some of these events, like for instance, I think at the last W3C All group meeting that was held in Fukuoka, Japan, easy in, for you to in say. September. <laughs> um, uh, it was something like Google had more people there than any other, than a- any of the other people combined. So uh, they so that's great in one way because they're doing a lot to promote innovation on the open web, and also it's not so great because it means that we're that everything that's happening is very much weighted towards what Google wants to see on the open web, and so there's a so there there is that kind of balance. You, you say the open web. What is the
1: open web? Isn't it just the web? What's the difference between the web, the open web, and
0: what else is the op- alternative so i guess we use the word open to inf- to emphasize the fact th- the the openness of it as a platform and i think people sometimes get confused about what is the web what is an app if i'm using an app am i using the web am i if i'm using the twitter app am i actually using the web i think there is no really good definition of the web actually. Right. Um, but what I like to think about is things that are built using web technologies that are standards tend to be, tend to fall into my, uh, uh, category of the web, um, things that are online and that are open that are accessible, that, uh, where, uh, the, where anybody can access them. Um, where uh it is not you don't have to pay usually to download something you don't have to download and install uh software on your device or on your computer in order to start using them because you use it through the web browser that tends to be something that we think of as the web and therefore open
1: okay um is there going to be an html6
0: I don't think so. No, I, I think don't. think HTML. I, just, I is, thought you might know. Yeah, it's not gonna. I think the powers, the people that are working on HTML, and that tends to be engineers in the browser companies, really that are that are that are massively invested in kind of refining HTML. Um, they are off of this idea of version numbers the thing that's in vogue right now is talking a lot about living standards and so when people who are working on the html standard talk about html they they tend to talk about just html um and they shy away from things like talking about html5 because you know when we started talking about html5 a number of years ago it was great it was a good way to get people excited about HTML again and to understand that HTML5 is different because it enables all of these great new features that people have been asking for. And But actually, those features are dribbling into the platform over you know, over time now. So I, I don't think there's a need to release like anything called an HTML6. It's just going to continue to evolve and as, as part of the web platform.
1: Okay. Because, I mean, Wi-Fi just became Wi-Fi 6, didn't it, as a standard? Because they thought 802.11.5 was... Not catchy
0: enough for yeah, some reason. those Wi-Fi version numbers just really... They never really... <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't get those guys to do my marketing. Okay.
1: Well, look, um, did you happen to catch Sir Tim on the BBC on his Wreath um, uh, presentation? Yeah. What did you think? Any, any thoughts from there? Um, I mean, obviously... I'm always surprised at the internet and the age of our technology. So the, the iPhone's only 10 years old. The internet mm-hmm. is 1969, 1970. But the web's only 30 years old. I mean, it's a baby still. I mean, it's younger than you and I. Yeah. Well, you, I, maybe not you. but <laughs>
0: I'm very, very nice. You, you're doing well Very nice. I'm more on the age of the internet than I am the age <laughs> of the web. So.
1: You and me both. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean you know given given you and i have been lucky enough i guess to see the internet from its beginning when when did you first come across the web and the internet and in you know where, where where did you suddenly
0: see this thing so uh let me start by a little bit of history um so when i was at carnegie mellon as a student uh, that's a university in pennsylvania where that's very strong on uh, internet and uh and uh, computer science and um, I had, uh, I was lucky enough to be able to play around with some early internet, uh, tools. And, you know, so we were connected to MIT and Stanford and a number of other, uh, this was in uh, the, the kind of mid to late eighties. Uh, we were connected over the internet. So it was amazing to me that you could actually connect to a computer in, uh, a different city and uh, directly use that computer. Um, that was before the web. So a lot of these services were text-based. Um, you know, you could telnet, you could FTP, you could meaning you could uh, g- grab a file and bring it down over the internet. You could remotely connect and control another computer directly and in real time. That was like magic, right? So I started to think about what could you do with that uh, superpower. Um, and, and I actually, I, have a, I had a, and still have a passion for science fiction. So I actually developed a science fiction magazine called Quanta, uh, really? which uh, I published over the internet. Um, and we had, this was in 1989, we had about 2,500 subscribers a- around the world. Um, many of whom we couldn't reach via, directly via the internet, but there were these other networks that pre um, that predated the internet, like BitNet and TelNet. Um, which uh, connected all of these uh, academic institutions around the world, and so you could gr- you could get a really wide audience. So what we did is, we, or what I did is, I actually um, published it as a postscript because they didn't have PDF back then. So we published a postscript file or a text version, and yeah. uh, and I started to understand a, a little bit from that experience about how how the internet was going to, how the internet was going to work, how it was going to revolutionize the way people communicate. And, and, um, I was all really, you know, out of like a, uh, uh, a kind of, uh, sophomoric dream to start my own zine. And, uh, you know, and out of that, I kind of began to develop some vision, I think about, you know, what the future of the, of communications was going to look like. But even at that time, I was telling you earlier, I was, I was the gopher guy at Carnegie Mellon. So gopher was a system that predated the web. Um, it was based around text-based menus. And then you get to the end of the menu and you download the text file or the Whatever file, so it was. A, it was a little bit somewhere. Be, it was somewhere between basic, you know, terminal-based communication and the web that we know today. It didn't yet have hyperlinks or anything like that. So then, somebody first showed me a web browser, the uh, Viola web browser, and my initial reaction was, eh, "I don't think that's ever going to catch on. That's <laughs> not really Gopher's the thing, right?" So um, I learned from that as well, and uh, now I understand. You know, when I see something new, not to have that kind of reaction. But uh, that was uh, that I remember having that exact reaction, and, and I laugh at myself today.
1: Yeah, in the early 90s, I moved from Microsoft to Netscape. And I remember seeing – well, I'd, I'd seen the internet while I was at Microsoft. They did actually know it existed, even though they didn't really do anything with it. Um, and I actually went along to a company called Deck Digital. Yeah. And uh, they were in Reading, and I went to see them. And uh, they were very good at showing me how the whole thing worked, actually green screens and everything else. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and excuse me. And uh, I remember, though, in those days we had real problems with protocols and stuff, and. TCP IP suddenly came about and suddenly everything was uniform and it was easy yeah and I still didn't get it I like you I I was like "Mm, no I've got Excel and I've got drag and drop and I've got all these lovely systems They're all colorful and pretty and this green terminal didn't look very exciting And then I went to Netscape and saw the Navigator the first browser that I saw properly and I still didn't get it, but it was my job then to try and sell it. Um, but you know, very quickly I did get it. I mean, you yeah. know, and standards that were now we
0: call standards were beginning to form. You know, um, so so Netscape was responsible for pushing a lot of the those things which we now think of as web standards. Yeah, they were they were really back at that time all of those web. Technologies were developed by individual browsers and that's why we ended up with say ActiveX from Microsoft, which, which and, was awful. Yeah. Um and but a lot of that stuff that came out of Netscape. <laughs> JavaScript is a really good example, you know, was, was developed by Netscape. And now that's the lingua franca of web applications. So, yeah. um, so every browser has a JavaScript engine. You know. Well, RSS was also developed at Netscape. Um,
1: you know, um, yes, it was evolved by Dave Weiner, but it was originally yeah. developed by Netscape's, and, and quite a few other standards that we, as you say, use today. Um, a lot of the early HTML standards were... Um, sadly Netscape's no longer as we know it's he
0: well it's kind of morphed into Mozilla right so um and if you work with people in Mozilla like I do you end up running into a lot of people who were there from the Netscape days. so it's really interesting
1: yeah it's strangely though I think the, the the Mozilla Firefox Foundation is now I mean one of the guys um Jason I has gone over to start the bat browser hasn't he so oh yeah
0: uh yeah, uh but b- Brendan Eich. Brendan, Ike, Brendan actually, Eich. Brendan was uh was one of he was the inventor of JavaScript. Yeah. And he was definitely at Netscape. And he then went on to be CTO and then CEO briefly of of uh of Mozilla. Uh but then yeah, he 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 left. Um and uh, what he's doing, I think at Brave is really, that's really why exciting. Don't, why do I say Yeah. Bat? No, well, because they they invented their own cryptocurrencies that's, the Basic Attention Token. Yeah, that's it. Um, which Thank they're you for using. Getting me out of the hole. <laughs> which they're using as a. Um, uh, it's a, yeah, it's not the Bat Browser. It's not. We're not talking Adam West here. <laughs> um, no, the uh, uh, the. Uh so their their idea is to use this um cryptocurrency in order to remunerate uh web publishers. So you might go onto the Guardian or some other website and uh based on the time that you spend there, uh they get some money in the form of cryptocurrency. But the way that they've built this system is it's totally anonymous. Uh they the Guardian doesn't know or whoever the website that you're visiting doesn't know who the money is coming from. They just know that they get a certain amount of money, um, and so it's it's very clever what they're doing there. They're they're really trying to think about you know an, a a, a post advertising approach. Uh, for for how content developers can get paid really for for writing content and that, I think that's extremely exciting and they're also doing a hell of a lot to promote web privacy and so they're they're I, they're one of the browsers that I use pretty right re- pretty regularly actually
1: yeah I'm, I'm seriously thinking of moving over from Chrome which has become a bit bloat wearish for me mm-hmm. um, you know it's, it's still my choice browser I moved from Firefox but
0: it, I, it's I, I suggest Definitely take a look at Brave. But on on here, on my Windows machine, I'm using Firefox these days. And I've switched back to Firefox. Um, I think they are also doing, partially, uh, I think, prompted by the work that Brendan did at Brave. They have actually done a lot now to protect user privacy and protect users from tracking um, within Firefox by default. So they're doing a lot of by default anti-tracking stuff, which... Uh, is, I think, essential if you're going to be a web user uh, in the modern day.
1: Yeah. So let's go back to Tim Bensley because that fits in with what we were talking about with Brave right now. Um, he, he talks about his new startup called Inrupt and, Basically, he's come up with a contract for the web. So we've got two things that Tim was talking about on that BBC program. Inrupt is basically, uh, he says here, to restore the rightful ownership of data back to every web user. So what's broken on the web? I mean, it seems to be working fine for me. I I can get my goods delivered by Ocado or Amazon. I can can play around on Facebook and and share
0: photos. Is it broken? What's broken? So there's a fundamental issue with the way that the web works right now, which is that you, the aver- the way that advertising works and most of the money that is, that the web makes is through advertising. So you're talking about using Ocado, um or, you know, buying things. That's kind of a different uh, area. But the, uh, say so, so you're using a website like a newspaper, right? Um, how are, how is that make How is that newspaper making money from you visiting their website? Well, there are most aren't. That's why they're closing down. Yeah, well, yeah. But I mean, say that. Say that they are. <laughs> okay. Um, they're making money th- through advertising. Yeah. Um, and in order to furnish that need, this ecosystem, uh, a, a kind of ad tech industry, has sprung up, which has, you know, over the last ten, twenty years, which has. Um, Become a whole industry in and of itself of how, uh, uh, which which does a lot of things like real time bidding. Um, for instance, when your when your eyes hit that page, there's all there are all these calculations and transactions that are happening over the web in real time over the internet that are determining what ad you are actually going to see. Um, a lot of your information in terms of what websites you visit. Uh, then uh, get siphoned up into these ad networks and there are multiple, multiple ad networks. So that's why when you take a look at your analytics for your personal analytics, say, for um, that, say, a browser like Brave or Firefox gives you for how many trackers are tracking you across the web, it can often be in the the 50s or 60s or 70s or even hundreds of trackers are tracking you across the web. So that that's analogous to, you know, walking down the high street and you've got like 100 people, you know, following you with little notepads saying, uh, looking at, you know, and writing down a note every time you looked at a product, right? Or every time you expressed interest or every time your eyes, uh, you know, like changed uh, so that you were looking at a particular sign. And a lot of people think that that's kind of overreach and that the ad tech industry You know, has gone way too far in terms of tracking people's attention, tracking people's behavior. So, the negative aspect of that is that you can then use all of that data to um, micro-target people, um, which can have uh, kind of um, side effects. Uh, So, for instance, I mean, this is where the whole Cambridge Analytica thing came in, really, right where. Cambridge Analytica, by taking all the data that Facebook had about people, was able to micro-target people and arguably influence uh, elections and influence uh, behavior, influence opinion um, on really major issues. And one of the things that Tim has been talking about is a ref- uh, moratorium on, on political ads and especially targeted political ads. So that's one kind of negative consequence or unintended consequence of this, uh, attention economy that what, what a lot of people are calling a kind of, um, surveillance capitalism. Um, and oh, the way that I like to think about it, which is maybe, uh, helps people understand you wouldn't use a, a mail reader right now without a spam filter, right? Would you? No. Right. Because you would be inundated with spam. Because the majority of stuff. Most that of it would be for Viagra for a fifty-year-old man. Yes, exactly. Right, because they're targeting. Maybe I need it. <laughs> anyway. Yes. But the um, so you wouldn't use a mail reader without a spam. Um, uh, filter. Why would you use a web browser without a tracking blocker at this
1: point? Well, no, I do. I, everything, yeah, everything on, on my phone and also on my
0: uh, desktop it has an ad blocker on it. And and when it, it's funny because when I talk to people at uh, certain companies uh, that may have maybe big search companies that uh, talk about or that have a vested interest in the in the current advertising system continuing because they're making a hell of a lot of money from it they you know uh, they I asked them but do you use an ad blocker do you use a tracking blocker and most often they do so how can we well, as we web came out to- with own one for- Yeah yeah but they are also making some disingenuous arguments about different why? Tra- so so yeah. They're gonna track. They're gonna block trackers except for Google trackers.
1: Exactly. Sorry,
0: I was right. gonna say yeah. that's
1: the reason. Yeah, is yeah. to cut out everyone else's traffic.
0: Yes, exactly. Right. So, um, so but those people, the people that work on web technology, are very often using ad blockers and tracking blockers. So why are we expecting regular rank and file users to go? without that protection. Why, you know, why do we think that's okay? And I think, I think it's, I I think it's not okay. Well, I don't think it's
1: okay, but that was the deal. That was the deal that we all signed up to, whether we knew it or not, we signed up to the ad free, sorry, the ad supported free web. Yes. So, you know, that's true.
0: But, but, but the way that people, the way that people think that ads on the web work and the way they actually work, are two different things, right? Go on, so explain. The, explain to me. So the so you know when you ask people, and this was research done by Stanford University, yeah. um, they asked people how they asked people to describe how web ads work, right? right. Just based on their um, on their experience using the web, and the way that they described how web ads worked is basically how web ads used to work in the nineties, right? And they don't work like that anymore. There's all this real-time bidding and tracking and data collection and companies amassing huge profiles of your activity and your behavior. Um, And when you actually describe that to people in detail, they say, no, 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 that can't possibly be how it works. That would be illegal. Right. So the word on the street, the, the people who, un, who are not technologists, who are working, you know, who are just using the web, I mean, when you describe to it, to them, how web uh, advertising works, they think it must be illegal. It's actually not illegal. Or in some cases, because of GDPR and e-privacy directive in Europe, it is illegal um, and it's not being enforced correctly. So there are there are um, actually GDP... This is where GDPR uh, comes in and actually plays a very positive role um, if it's Apart enforced. Apart from when it asks me to click on a cookie thing every time I go to a website. And, and, and that is... That is the... Sorry, that's the only... No, uh, I agree with you. I completely agree with you. And I, I think that that is a misread of GDPR. Um, but it is something that a lot of people, that a lot of lawyers think that you need to do for some reason.
1: Yeah. But anyway, sorry, I put you off the track. So um, fundamentally, the, the, the ad model you say
0: isn't... Uh, it, it isn't equitable.
1: It, in the way that it should have been sold.
0: And it's, it's overreach. So there... And ad... Ad companies are not are not are uh, they are not um, able to or they're or they're not satisfied with being able to get the data that they can get just in the way just by looking at your. Um, your the information that you may want to give them right so a lot of people say i don't have any problem with targeted advertising that's fine people you know i actually like targeted advertising and i can understand that and i don't mind the idea of targeted advertising but what i mind is when ad networks use technologies which were not meant to collect data as additional ways to collect data or as ways to get around the um the affirmative action of a user to hide or to go private, so a good example might be when you're looking for um, when you're looking up medical information when you when you as a end user are looking up uh, diagnosis data or symptoms information, right you want to know if you have a certain disease, and arguably that's exactly when you want to be using something like private browsing mode, right uh, does that actually work in cognito mode? yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, no, no, no. Oh, that's, that's the thing, right? It should, it should. It depends on the browser though, right? Because different browsers have different incognito modes that are more or less effective because of what they do or do not block. So advertising networks actually try to un your traffic. So they use things like your IP address or the fonts that you have loaded onto your machine, all this kind of, all these kinds of pieces of information that we call browser fingerprinting to try to associate your private browsing with your non-private browsing. So that that kind of behavior is something that we call in the tag we had a finding called uh, unsanctioned tracking. Um, trying to uh, make a point that this is this is overreach. Why why are those ad networks doing that? They're doing it because they can, and nobody is stopping them from doing it. There's no regulatory against them. Uh, nobody's fining them for collecting all that data, and they think the more data that they have, the more money they, they can make, and maybe they're right. But when it comes to a... So the use case that I talked about before, the um, medical symptoms, if your symptoms start to look like... Um, you know, a disease, a particular disease, then you might start to get advertising spun at you that is related to that disease. Or if you start um, doing a lot of searches for uh, for things relating to pregnancy, um, then you're going to start getting a lot of advertising uh, that's aimed at expecting expectant mothers, right? Well, there was that girl who who um,
1: Facebook told her parents before she did yes. she was pregnant
0: yeah exactly right so these are the unintended consequences and the risks so it's not just about you know protecting my information or trying to be private or or trying to sort of be anti-capitalist it, there are real risks to people and uh, another risk that very often people cite is um, uh, you, if you are lgbt and you live in a country in which that is illegal well, now, having anybody actually amass information about you that indicates that you might be LGBT, like for instance, you visited a certain blog or you visited certain uh, you know resources um, uh, information um, communities well, that allows you to be targeted and it could be you could be targeted by advertising, which could result in you being shown an advertisement at a time where you could be compromised or where that could be exposed to people that you didn't mean to expose it to. Or you could be targeted by the state who might actually, um, you know, legally be able to get access to that information by subpoenaing it. Or by um, otherwise uh, talking to your ISP or talking to the service provider that you're using, right? So there's, you know, we, we get into a, a mindset here where oh, I'm not doing anything wrong, so why, you know, why do I care about my privacy? But what that ignores is mm-hmm. it ignores the needs of the marginalized communities and it ignores the needs of people that um, that might need a little bit more privacy. Um, and that, and I think when it comes down to it, when you start thinking about those use cases, you realize that that's everybody. Everybody that you know and is somebody that could benefit from more user privacy. But Scott McNeely told me privacy is dead. Get over it. Well, he would, wouldn't he?
1: (laughs) Okay. So um, I've got a couple of questions there. Look, um, I'm ad blind. Right, so I've got an ad blocker, so I yeah. still see a few ads, but I'm pretty much ad blind. I could have an ad on a page now. I know where the banners are. I, I don't really see them. I'm in Facebook. The stuff comes in the middle of my stream. I, I ignore it. Yeah, it, it's it's the marketeers are wasting their money, not me. And I and if they're paying for me to have free Facebook
0: and Twitter and other things, why do I care? Um, well, I actually think that that's a completely valid. Sorry, I'm playing devil's no, eye. absolutely, and uh, I I think that's a completely valid point of view, right? Um, My point is that you should be able to choose. So even if you um, do not mind advertising, you might mind it if your searches start coming back to you uh, in every single web page that you visit. And a lot
1: of people find that... They do come back to me.
0: A lot of people find that creepy. So uh, why is it that when you search up a new um, washing machine that for, you know, like seven months after that washing machines are stalking you around the around the web and you just want to yell into the void I already bought the washing machine okay
1: but, but I go ha 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 you stupid marketeer you've just paid for an advert that is effective.
0: I, I suppose it's a it's 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 definitely fine but I think a lot of people don't feel that way a lot of people feel that that's creepy and the research. Uh, Kind of backs that up that people don't like that ad retargeting and that's only one of the and that's that's something called ad retargeting that the advertising industry does and is one of the ways that they use that data about you the so. You know, one way that you can foil retargeting and still be fine with ads is simply by using a tracking blocker, right? So you can block tracking cookies and still allow those ad networks to spin you ads, and they're just going to be a little bit more generic ads. So that's fine. Then you're you, you that that's a halfway house that a lot of people um, are happy to live in. I'm personally happy with that. Um, I don't mind about ads, but what I when I when I do mind is when ads become interruptive. And, uh, so interstitial ads, for instance, are something that I really cannot stand, especially on the mobile web. So the, the, um, so ads can sometimes create this horrible user experience. So the, so on the mobile web, when you go to a web page, the current kind of like, um, uh, the, um, What's the word I'm looking for? The the stereotype is you uh, you find yourself on this page. You've just uh, clicked on a link. You want to read an article. You see like the first ha- the top of the page is taken up by an ad uh, for uh, download our app. The second, uh, like third of the page is for some is inter- some kind of interstitial or interruptive ad that just like uh, has a bunch of animation in it for a car or something. Then at the bottom is the cookie warning from GDPR, and you see maybe two pixels of the of the headline of the article, and you have to click away all these different things before you can actually get to the article. And that's a huge. That's a very very bad user experience. It is. It's awful. And, yeah. and that's what we are expecting now. That's the user experience that people expect to get. So. Um, if I get that user experience, I click away. I do not read that article. And I think that many people are rebelling against that kind of user experience. And that's, that's led a lot of people to install these kinds of ad blockers because they don't want that kind of experience. So, yeah. again, there's, there's this kind of tussle. There's this push-pull between content providers uh, say you know content publishers and the ad tech industry, which act as in some way as their agents but in some ways are kind of this rogue agent, and the actual needs of individual users web users and and right now we 're way too the balance is out of whack, way too much over towards ad tech so
1: yeah I mean I agree with you so I, on my on my uh, phone, I have an ad blocker um so that gets rid of a lot of it and i did that more on my mobile than i do on my laptop because it's actually my data that i'm being consumed yeah. from my my um contract you know mm. with my uh, phone operator and so they're using my data to serve me an ad that i don't want that's when i actually think it's worse yeah. but but so an ad blocker helps me there and but, if
0: you're roaming that could, that's that's especially difficult right because yeah. then you're paying even extra for the for the you know for the data for spam yeah
1: um but I've always argued that actually um, there's two models that could get rid of this problem. One is first and foremost, well, three, actually. First and foremost, um, Amazon's got a, a, a new ad. Uh, it's the third biggest, large, largest serving ad provider in, in the world behind Facebook and Google now mm-hmm. out of nowhere. Um, and they don't – because you buy from Amazon – and you literally, therefore, they know the purchase is complete. They don't retrack you in that same way. So that's quite a cool model. Um, If you're going to have to have ads, that's one way of doing it, I guess. But not everyone's got the data that Amazon has. Um, The second one is why don't we move to a subscription payment-based model and get rid of ads altogether? So get rid of the ad-free supported model and go... And and that's what I'm doing a lot, actually. You know, I pay for Spotify. I don't want ads. I pay for Medium because I just want to get on with the better articles. I Mm -hmm. pay for various download services. I pay for the FT. I pay... I mean, so
0: I'm... Yeah, isn't that the model that we should be? I think that is a model, but and, and I think that's a good model. Um, and, and I pay for a lot of those services as well. I was telling you earlier that I moved from Gmail as my, um, free Gmail, as my primary email reader to uh, Proton Mail recently, and uh, you know, after taking a look at a lot of different options, and I pay for that. Um, and one reason I want to pay for that and I choose to is because I know that they're going to keep my information private and they don't have any kind of ad crawler looking through all my email and trying to target ads to me um however there is the risk that that creates a two-tier web then that there's the web that for fancy people that can pay for things and then there's the web for for the rest of us
1: isn't that called the real world (laughs) i mean sorry i mean i don't happen to eat at a five-star michelin restaurant every time i can
0: i just can't afford it but we shouldn't be uh, relegating um, to people who are who have lower income, uh, we shouldn't be relegating them to kind of uh, uh, second tier web where they only can get access to things if they watch a lot of interruptive advertising and they can only get rid of the advertising. Isn't if that they... called TV? Yeah, yeah <laughs> it is, and that's why a lot of people aren't using TV exactly. anymore, exactly. right? You know, um. But, uh, or aren't watching TV anymore. The, um, yeah, it's going down rapidly. <laughs> um, so ideally, we should be moving towards more ethically founded advertising and ethically founded uh, web sites and web services. And that's where I think uh, the focus should be on how can we achieve what we all want to achieve, but do so in a way that respects user privacy, that respects user agency um that doesn't provide a platform for people to be cynically manipulated um so that's one thing that came out of tim's um uh, uh discussion which i think really resonates with me is and you know wh- wh- if we don't if we don't think that there's a way to safely do political advertising on the web without a, without uh it also being a force for manipulating public opinion with fake news and um, and basically you know lies, then uh, then we should put a moratorium on it for now and try and figure out how it can be done in a more ethically sound way because right now it's not and and mm-hmm. uh, and I, I think that that I think for I'm not holding up Twitter as a great example of ethical. Stuff, but uh, to their credit, they did put a moratorium on on political advertising. I that's think only because it was less than one percent of their revenue. Yeah, no,
1: that's true. I um, mean, they didn't they they jumped on a good PR story, yeah. um, but it wasn't really going to hurt them in any way. So, yeah,
0: but if you take a look at what Facebook does, um, they enable people to target. Uh, groups They enable people to target, micro-target different groups with different messages. So you can take one message, which you know is going to appeal to gun lovers, and, and uh, you know, you can target that message to gun lovers, and you can target another totally different message, totally opposite thing to, uh, to people who support gun control. This is in the U.S. context, for instance. Um, yeah. And so that enables you to, and you can run these ads and test things and A-B test them and do all kinds of targeting. Um, so, you know, what that means is that different groups of people are hearing completely different things. So how can they make reasonable decisions about, about what, um, about what to vote, who to vote for or what to believe, um, anymore. People are being fed all kinds of disinformation and there's no regulatory around it. There's no, there's nothing that's, um, stopping people from putting disinformation and, Flat out lies uh, into those types of platforms, and and that matters when it when it comes to political advertising. Oh, I I agree, and I think um, <clears throat> so. There's
1: a couple of points here um, <laughs> I want to go through <laughs> because there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. So. Um, Andrew Yang, one of the presidential um, candidates for the U.S. president, uh, this week or last week came out and said, look, you know, why don't we just have subscriptions for Facebook and Twitter and and other services? That gets rid of the need for an ad-supported network, maybe, because the revenues would be similar. I'm sure they'd still stick ads in as well, just because they're greedy. But that could get rid of that ad-supported free network. Um, Secondly, um, trolls. Would they really want to pay a subscription in order to troll? Mm-hmm. Um, the third one, which I, I I agree and I disagree on, one was why, you know, a lot of um, radio stations, uh, national radio stations like Talk Sport, when there was a lot of. Um, Racism towards footballers. You know, why don't you just make Twitter handles all you know real? You can't have anonymous Twitter handles. You know, and then you go back to your point where you were talking about earlier: LGBT people in marginalized
0: communities. Yeah. They need that anonymous. You thing. need you need it absolutely. Yeah, that's why you can't. That's why real name uh, doesn't work. And again, people who are not marginalized uh, often don't kind of get it. But once yeah, once it's, you once it's first you, world privilege. Yes, right.
1: Yeah. And so I was screaming at the radio these stupid football commentators Duh, I have no clue why aren't they just name them because you don't know what it's like to live in Egypt or Iran or Russia or Hong Kong where or,
0: or you know or in the UK as well in some communities Maybe, right yeah. you know so it's where, where you may not be comfortable sharing your identity or you might be you know uh, you might be trans and and have come out to your friends but not have come out to your parents yeah. right you know and um, arguably, that's something that what are you looking the, like at me? Wh- <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, um, yeah, I agree. So, so anonymous needs to remain,
0: and subscriptions. Do you think that is the way forward? Maybe I think subscriptions are a part of it, and I've always thought that. So, one of the companies that I worked for um, uh, in the Boom Boom dot com days was the Street dot com, and that was a news and financial website, uh, no, uh, financial information website, uh, based out of New York. Um, they were actually the ones that brought me over here to the UK in 99 because I came over here to open up the uh, UK division of the street.com, uh, which was the street.co.uk. And that was a website that was based on the idea of uh, subscribe subscription revenue. So we had advertising, but we also had subscription revenue. That's a very specific type of content, though, and FT kind of falls into that same, um, that same bucket, right? Because... It's content that people are willing to pay for because it helps them make money, and generally speaking, it is content that is uh that targets people that do have money because it's target it's targeting investors, yeah, maybe the fT is a
1: bad example because that d- hits all those points you just said, yeah, but it hit its first million paywall subscribers a couple of weeks
0: back. Yeah, and the um, New York Times, I think, has also been doing well with subscription revenue. So uh, Washington Post as well has... has, has but I think it's a know. flight back to
1: trusted sources. This is what I'm finding. Yeah. So I'm willing to go back to a trusted source because fake news is just annoying me. This, this The rubbish yeah. that gets put through my stream that I have to go, is that true? Is that not true? I just want to go back to some authored journalist who's checked their facts before they've published yeah. rather than some bloke in his room, you know, going, oh, John F. Kennedy was shot by Obama,
0: you know, and and spreading, uh, you know, some mad l- rumour. And I think people do, I think that's the kind of media literacy that somehow people seem to have missed have stopped understanding that trusted sources and real journalism, real journalism is a thing basically. Right. Um, and you need to be able to make those decisions about what, who you trust editorially, what, uh, journalistic practices are they, are they, um, operating under? Do you trust the New York times? Do you trust the Washington post? Do you trust the FT? Um, and, when you are provided a bunch of information in a kind of undifferentiated feed, where it's not exactly clear where the information has come from, it damages that ability to 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 have that uh, to, for you to individually differentiate and to um, discriminate about uh, is this information trustable? I mean, one of the things that we that I I think is we need a web where it is much easier to. Um, Research the source of the information that you're um, that you are that you're viewing, and to understand what independent fact checkers have had to say about that information as well. So there's a there's a there's a um, browser extension called NewsGuard, which I am running on all my browsers these days, which uh, allows you, which basically provides some additional information when you see something in your news feed or in search results or anything that is uh that is pointing to a what you know a journalistic source um, it will provide you a bit of a score on whether or not that is a company that is trustworthy and you know I'm not vouching for their for their particular uh, take on things I mean there are some things that they think are trustworthy that I don't particularly trust like Fox News for instance but um the uh, you know, but but in general, uh, I think that might be the way to go, um, where the browser or the tools that you use help you to determine the trustworthiness of information and help you to also research the um, the source of that information and even the underlying data that that was used to generate the, this piece of journalism. Yeah, and
1: um, my my worry here is um, that. Isn't this something that, going back to what you do in in TAG, isn't this something that the W3C can look at? This is a browser-level issue. You know, cookies are, God, they're as old as the web, really. Mm -hmm. You know, um, transparency of source, I mean, citations. and, And, you know, one of the things I've always thought, which is it's a crazy thing. When I hover over a link, why can't the link show me other information, not just where it's going back to? You know why can't I have a drop down menu on the link telling me you know here's the source here's how many it's a trusted source or whatever yeah, and giving me more data than just the one single thing that the link is you know it, I think the link it, it, it it's it's a great i mean obviously it's a great idea it's what makes the web but yeah, but what worries me is that we've got web shorteners now we've got other ways of spoofing links shouldn't we be looking at at browser level having a link that I can right mouse click, we all know how to do that, that tells me more about this link, who created it, how long is this link? Because the one other thing that really bugs me about URLs is you can have a link that goes back to an article that may, may be 10 years old.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's no good way like yeah, so you How end fresh up is this link? You, you, end, you end up with a lot of Maybe old data. No, that, that well, I think this is <laughs> one of the I think this is one of the areas where I see a lot of innovation happening on the web right now. So it all kind of fits under the heading in my view of something called privacy enabling technology. So things like um, ad blockers, tracking blockers, uh, extensions that help you to to find out the veracity of information that you're looking at that help you untangle the web and that uh that that stop bad things from happening to you um some of that needs to be built into the browser absolutely we're seeing there's an a you know that part of the evolution of the web is that things get built as extensions which you have to install on top of your browser and then if they become very popular extensions, then the browser makers look to actually and you know bring those things into the web. Ad blocking and tracking blocking are very good examples where Google are starting to do their own, even and definitely Firefox and um, uh, other browsers like um, uh, Safari have done a lot of work where they've actually brought functionality that previously existed only ex- in extensions into the browser themselves so that so that when something's in the browser itself it becomes a lot more powerful because a lot more people are going to use it because there's because there's a um you know that there, there is a, a, a reluctance of, that people have to install you have to be a kind of power user yeah. to install browser extensions let's face it right yeah. um so that's a good segue into talking about something that I have actually been involved okay. in which is related to uh, the work that Tim has been talking about when it comes to the contract for the web so we've been doing something in the w3c which as I mentioned is the World Wide Web consortium that is the standards body for the web um, trying to ask the or answer the question what can we as technologists do to enable a more ethical web a safer web a better web a web that's better for society right so the web should be you know when we started off with with the idea that the web must enable a good society right the, the web should not be creating a bad a bad society because we should not be um, the web the web itself should uh, be a positive net influence and that comes back to the very early days of the web why was the web um, invented in the first place to share information wild, widely, um, mostly at first between academic communities. And um, when it comes to science data, um, but more recently, it's been a great help to people in society um, to get information, to get re- to research uh, data, to re- to, re- to get access to educational materials, to get access to all kinds of. Um, information, information about their government, uh, to be able to do things like register to vote, to be able to do things like um, apply for a passport, apply for you know all kinds of government uh, uh, activities that you that you need to do, apply for jobs, uh, search for jobs, uh, finance, personal finance, yeah, every, everything that we do these days in some way is ha- is touched by the web um, from birth uh, to death, really. Um, so at this point, uh, we need to think about you know how how we make the technologies actually work has an impact on how those technologies are used and whether or not they're used to build a good web and a good society or to reinforce negative uh, behaviors and to create a, you know a dystopian uh, society, right? Um, So, we developed something called the Ethical Web Principles, which we are trying to use as a way, as a kind of rubric, to help us evaluate new web technologies when they come, uh, when they are proposed. So, when somebody proposes a new piece of web technology, um, like, for instance, a functionality within your browser that could allow it to connect to a Bluetooth device around you or to uh, look into your photos on your phone, or to look into your contact book, your address book on your phone, so that you can more easily um, send contact uh, information to somebody. Um, Well, in those cases, when we're evaluating that kind of technology, and this is in the tag group that I I co-chair, how do we make sure that we take into account the needs of for example, marginalized communities, um, the needs of people that are... um that 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 may that may not be mainstream that the or the needs of people who have uh who have a strong need to maintain their their privacy. So those are some of the things, and I'd be happy to talk about that more. Maybe in, in we, the we we are
1: going to talk about that after the news, along with the contract for the web, along with a whole bunch of other things. There is so much, and I have only got through the first two of my ten questions to you, Daniel, which is ridiculous. I mean, I've got a dozen questions here, um, but yeah, uh, and we still haven't finished talking about you know subscription models and th- there's a whole thing about the social gap that i think which might fit in yeah. with what you're talking about the ethical web anyway i hope you're enjoying it i'm here with my guest daniel applequist from samsung uh we'll be back very shortly you're listening to sam sette on Marlow fm o-n-g who gave him a show indeed who did but thank (laughs) you very much we'll never know we'll never know the the money's in the brown bag um welcome back you're listening to me sam Sethi. i'm joined by my brilliant guest daniel applequist um daniel is the web advocate at samsung internet and we've been talking about the future of the web but we've only just really started looking at the problems of the web we haven't even touched on what the contract for the web is. We haven't even touched on. Now, before the break, you were talking about some of the work you're doing at the W3C to do with ethics. Maybe you can just revisit
0: that and just keep, go keep going. Sure. So, um, as I mentioned, the W3C, which is the World Wide Web Consortium, there's an awful lot of acronyms in this in this space, right? So you got You've got to have TLAs. A, yeah, some TLAs. We are going to get through a lot of TLAs here. Um, but. One of the things that the W3C does is it works on new web technologies. So it, it's a place where people can come to build new web technologies that they want to add to the web. So new capabilities, new features, and um, we're really keen in the tag anyway, uh, and I think in general in the in the web technology community. That the web is seen as a positive force, not just positive, not just a place where you can come and do business, not just a neutral technology platform that anybody can come and use and make money on, but um, uh, but that the web itself uh, is, is pro-social, that it is a force for good when it comes to society. And that very much... Goes back to the web's roots as a as an information sharing uh, mechanism that uh, uh, is part that uh, is based around the ideas of freedom of speech, freedom of expression, um, and open access to information. So, um, so it's with that kind of background that we ended up uh, talking a lot starting last year about um what could we build as a set of principles that could be that could underpin this idea of an ethical web more a more ethical web than we have now that could actually help to help us to build technologies uh in a more ethical way so things like for instance uh the web should not cause harm to society that's actually one of our principles right um uh, when we 're adding a new feature to the web, you know we we need to consider what harm it could do to society uh, or groups especially especially vulnerable people, especially people who are marginalized um, and that's something that then us as a kind of steering body or as a kind of review board when we're talking to new new web uh technologists who are coming up with new ideas you know we're going to ask them, have you considered this so another um Uh, thing is uh, security and privacy are essential, right? So we have a whole separate checklist which is like, you know, uh, pages long that uh, encourages people to think about all the privacy uh, risks that introducing a new technology um, into the web could be bringing to end users. And that includes... Um, things like the kinds of commercial privacy that we 've been talking about earlier, but also um, privacy from the state privacy from um, pri- privacy in a social context right um, coming back so, so coming back to two thousand and fourteen for a second, uh, if you remember there were, um, there was this guy, Ed Snowden, mm-hmm. who made a lot of um, uh, who brought to light a lot of Information about how the U.S. government in particular had been um, hoovering up, siphoning up data from people's normal use of the web amongst other electronic systems, call data as well and things like that. But definitely web use was one of those things. And one of the ways or one of the reasons that um, the government was able to do that so easily is because at that time, a lot of web traffic was unencrypted. It was HTTP uh, as opposed to HTTPS. And what is the essence in, in HTTPS stands for? It stands for secure. So uh, when your traffic is going over HTTPS, right, and this is something that p- web users might be familiar with just by looking at the top of their browser whenever they're looking at uh, a web page, they can see if the web page is either HTTP or HTTPS. Well, if it's H- HTTPS, secure, uh, protocol, then that means it's encrypted end to end between you and the um, person that's sending you the page. So the service that's sending you the page, like your bank or the FT or whoever, um, and in that case, you know that nobody can siphon off uh, and uh, kind of a snoop on your activity uh, with that particular um, website. You know it's encrypted. So if you write something to uh, somebody, if you nobody can see your bank balance when when your bank balance is being transmitted to you over that way. So one of the things that we did in 2014 is uh, I actually um, hosted a workshop when I was working for Telefonica uh, in London where we brought about 100 web technologists together uh, from the W3C and another group called the IETF, the Internet Engineering Task Force, which looks at protocols, including HTTP. Um, and we, tr- we tried to say... Look, uh, Snowden has made these revelations. Uh, what can we as web technologists do about this? And what was amazing was that nobody, almost nobody in that room, questioned the role of web technologists to actually help to mitigate against these issues. Because we all saw this as an attack. An attack on the basic fundamental technology platform of the web. Um and what we 've ended up with is through that effort and through a lot of other efforts, similar efforts that have happened since that time uh, we 've actually moved the needle where the majority the vast majority of web pages are now served over HTtps um, that 's really good news for privacy it 's really good news for individual privacy it 's good news across the board for uh, for people who are marginalized, but people who are just regular people you and me you can know. That your ISP, your your internet provider, your government are not going to be there, um, able to uh, just kind of like indiscriminately surveil you while you are using the web,
1: yeah, and um, which is great. And I think this week or, or last week, um, DNS Sec, which is DNS Security, was was in being uh, ratified and then it's going to be pushed into the, the browser. So the idea being that all browsers will look to have a secure so vince surf who created the internet so one of his big mistakes was not to build security into the dns protocol to begin with um and that was that was or into http sorry not the dns protocol http in the beginning so um dns sec is a way of making sure that all transactions or communications across the web are secure right one Uh, I think Google has said that they're now going to start to put a certificate onto browser pages, which says that if you're not using uh, HTTPS, it'll come up with a red or a amber. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's
1: very visual.
0: This encourages more more websites to adopt secure protocols. Yes. Yeah.
1: And then the other one they're going to do is if your site's slow now, they're going to also show
0: a, 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 a symbol that shows that the, the website yeah. that you're on is slow. And that's... That's really a separate issue. I mean, it is. It's 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 important. It's not It's, not,
1: it's right. not
0: really a security or privacy thing. It is definitely important for the future of the web that we um, that we pay attention to the user experience and the web user experience. You know, I I hate to come back to this, but it does relate to the um, preponderance of ad networks and ad providers because the problem with the slow web. Uh, and with the fact that web pages have a reputation for being slow uh is very is very often down to the third party ad networks that are actually spinning ads into your page um, because those that 's where all the that 's where all the um, um that 's where all the time is spent that's that's that 's where all the your cpu cycles are being burnt up and your network is being burnt up so this is another reason why people install um, install uh, ad blockers, and I think, to a certain degree, what I, what Google is doing there, I think it's very good. Actually, they're putting an emphasis on trying to enforce, uh, like a like a secure um, a. Um, A performance, what they call a performance budget, right? So, making sure that web pages are fast, uh, and there's a bottom line for Google because fast web pages mean more uh, revenue for Google uh, because more people will see more ads and more pages (laughs) and more pages, right? So, so they're not doing it because they're nice people, but they, um, but it also it has a "Don't be evil" doesn't exist to Google anymore. I am not going to comment on that. (laughs) You're at (laughs) something. It doesn't
1: exist anymore, (laughs)
0: right? um but anyway i mean like so, so it is, it is entangled. The, the performance issue is entangled with the whole, uh, with the whole advertising ecosystem yeah. uh, issue as well.
1: So um, a friend of mine, Paul Walsh, you might know Paul. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Don't roll your eyes at me. <laughs> uh, but he has got, he, I mean, he, he has got a product called MetaSert, which yeah. is uh, quite an interesting product. I do use it. Um, and MetaSert is a browser plugin. And the idea is it's looking at making links safe and um, telling you which sites are trusted now and that's got another badge of green amber and red so i mean it yeah. seems like a very good thing to add stop google uh, sorry, of phishing sites and stops ransomware and malware
0: yeah i think that that's a that that's a kind of technology that fits exactly under the umbrella of privacy enabling tech right yeah. or um Which something would be that great helps. if it wasn't an extension but it was built in yeah something that helps protect your your usage, your browser usage as, as you're using the web. Because coming back to the fundamental like what is the web question, right? What is the web? Well, one, di- one, one difference that the web has be- between the web and other like computing platforms such as, for instance, iOS apps or Android apps is that the web has a browser. The browser, which is sometimes called the user agent, right, is the thing that sits between you and the app provider and they are they are your agent the browser is your is is meant to be not only the environment where the app provider's app runs but is also protecting you from the uh from overreach from the app provider right so um for instance if you subscribe to push notifications from a particular application from within your browser you can always go and remove those push notifications um at the browser level um if you want to uh put a ad blocker in place you do that at the browser level um the browser acts as a as a kind of um environment a safe environment where the web uh, application can execute, and you know that if you click on that link, the worst that's going to happen is you're going to get a bad user experience and maybe see some ads that you didn't want to see. But you know that it probably will not uh, take over your machine and you know start uh, making premium rate calls or doing other kinds of things um, that could uh, um, that could be bad for you, right? So, so that. That architecture is fundamental to the web. And that's one of the reasons why it is inherently a more ethical platform than native applications that you download and install, which have more um, ability. They have more ability to reach into your computer, or reach into your private information and do stuff which you may not be happy with them doing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think. look at it as the browser is as you said the user agent that filters the web before it comes to you right Um, and so I guess your role in the W3C is to make sure that you add more and more things into the browser that makes it much more as you
0: say ethical privacy secure. as we add things and we are very much we have a focus on trying to add new features into the web platform that that make it possible to do more with the web, because right now you can't do everything with the web that you can do with a native application. We want to we want to have more parity between the web and native, but at the same time we have to maintain what makes the web special, which is being this more trustable, more ethical environment. And so we need to make sure that when we evaluate new technologies that come to the web, we make sure that they that we're evaluating with an with an ethical lens. Okay, um, there's so much we've got to get through, and we're
1: running sure. out of time. Um, did you see the Sasha Baron Cohen? Uh, I did. Yeah, um, yeah. For those who didn't see it, Sasha Baron Cohen basically stood up uh, and talked about how unethical, fundamentally, Facebook, Google, and Twitter are. Mm-hmm. How they should be closed down. And he, he, I thought the power of what Sasha Baron Cohen said though, was: if in Nazi Germany Goebbels had access to Facebook, you know, he would have been promoting the extermination of Jews. And Facebook, in their current guise, would not stop that because they're saying they're not going to fact-check, they're not going to do political ad things. So, I mean, I I have heard the reverse from Facebook, and Facebook's reverse comment is, no, we won't put legislation in place to do this. This is freedom of speech. But if the government puts legislation in place, we will enact it. So where does the fault lie? Was Sasha Baron right? Is Facebook wrong? Or is it the lack of government coming into the the equation because facebook is saying we don't want to be the bad guys we want the government to be the bad guy and then we'll act on what the government tells us
0: so i am not a lawyer and i am not a policy guy okay? okay um so please treat anything that i say on this topic with a big grain of salt because my essential qualifications lie in the area of technology right um I think that sasha Baron Cohen yeah. what sasha Baron Cohen first of all, it was very refreshing to see sasha Baron Cohen playing sasha Baron Cohen, yes. which i yeah. I thought that was great he said uh, it was
1: the at one
0: time his, he's played that part yeah he's the least fa- his least popular character yeah. I just love was it. A, i yeah, love that it. and and I have a great affinity for sasha Baron Cohen because I actually work in Stains. that's where um, Stains that's, massive that's that's right that <laughs> Stains was put on the map by sasha Baron Cohen through his through his um G character, but the um no, I think what he was saying should be a wake-up call to people. And um, so, I recently closed my Facebook account, and I shut and I, and I um, sold my very small stake in Facebook. Uh, I had some stock in them um, because i think what they've been doing is not ethical i don't think that uh that they're uh, i don't think they're operating in good faith uh when it comes to relaying data and information to people i don't think they've given all the information i mean if you've taken a look at um zuckerberg's testimony uh to congress uh it's not credible it was awful you know um it's i you know i Without getting too political, uh, Sam, I think that they are cozying up to the far right. I mean mm-hmm. they've they've put in place a kind of trusted news sources thing. One of those yes. trusted news sources Breitbart. is Breitbart, which yes. is which is a mouthpiece for right right wing. It would have been um, Goebbels' mouthpiece, exactly. And they've fallen back a lot on the kind of um, thing about well, you know. Everything we're doing is legal and uh, it's all in the name of free speech and different opinions. But in the end, some opinions uh, are, are very damaging to especially so, – so they have, in effect, they've taken a side. And the side I think they've taken at a corporate level um, is, is the far right. And so I'm not happy to support that anymore. Um, I, you know, so, so I think they've stepped over a line. Exactly, yeah. um, uh, and maybe they ought to be. There. So there are some there are some specific recommendations that I think he made about Facebook about um, uh, political ads, and I think Tim Berners Lee um, had some other specific recommendations, which I think were quite good, which are to do with you know if you're going to enable political ads, at least disable micro targeting. Uh, don't enable the more. Um, harmful aspects of this uh, so that you can um, and and that i think could be so that there, there, there are a few things that facebook is doing that they could be doing a lot better that could be um that are that are more used by the right wing than they are by any other voice in the political spectrum And there and that that's the that's the problem well these are all at the edge
1: um, kooks who we used to know existed you know the bmp the national front you know the marxist left even and and they were all on the edge of the margins not in the center so we you know we oh god it's one of those they've they've started spouting some rubbish we knew it was rubbish but now sites like facebook and twitter by the way yeah they're not then they don't get off scotch free no Uh, and even google to some extent you know what where they have search results which link to saying Auschwitz didn't exist and the
0: Holocaust is Sh- fake. Sure, Should they be allowed to do that? Because that, and because a lot of these sites, um, so forgetting about paid uh, uh, content for a second, right? A lot of these sites uh, favor um, content that is... Uh, that gets a lot of eyeballs. It gets a lot of clicks. And when you say something controversial, it will get a lot of clicks and it'll get a lot of eyeballs, right? So therefore, their algorithms pick these things up and they redistribute them to many people. I mean, I was using YouTube the other day. I'm a YouTube, you know, viewer. And... Uh, I went down to the news section that it automatically kind of put together for me, and they were all right-wing articles. And I don't know. I mean, you can get a feeling for my politics. I'm not exactly a right-wing person. Strange. That. So, um, you know, I found it very interesting that the and Google supposedly knows me, right? So they're supposedly targeting me, right? But like, you know, they had uh, all uh, all pictures of a extremely right-wing politician in the UK that I'm not going to mention. So, don't, don't <laughs> <have them anytime. laughs> but the, um, uh, my, you know, I actually s- took a screenshot of this and I sent this to some friends over at Google. Um, and I, you know, I just said like, look at this. This is why people are mad at Google. This is why people don't trust ad targeting. Because if I weren't savvy to it, if I didn't understand it, I might like know, I might see from that Oh wow! This is really interesting. This, this I'm seeing this person's face five different times. He must be saying something really interesting. I'm going to go and hear it. Um, if I'm if I'm more uh, influenceable, uh then I'm going to be highly influenced by that algorithm. And then so some so when some people say algorithms are not unbiased, that is what they mean. They're 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 biased towards engagement, and even if that engagement is highly negative, I think what one of the things Tim was talking about is. Can we move towards algorithms which favor um, uh, thoughtfulness as opposed to, uh, you know, negative emotions uh, and and that, that encourage people to think about uh, topics? And, you know, that, that is, is, that, is that something that we can be doing as an industry? Okay,
1: well, look, we've, we've talked about this contract for the web that Tim's put forward, like a Magna
0: Carta um, let's talk about
1: some of them. Look, principle one, ensure everyone can connect to the internet. That sounds good. Um, Labour want to make sure that everyone can connect to the internet freely, you know, uh, with broadband for all. Um, Russia wants to make sure that everyone can't connect to the internet with software that has Russian software on it, which has back doors. Well, think is the, the reverse of that as well. So, so
0: one thing that... Um, so this is, this is under what, it, what do governments do. So it, the, 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 the kind of... Um, top line stuff in here is like, what can governments do? What can companies do? What can individuals do? Um, and so one example could, you know, uh, of this ensure everyone can connect to the internet. Well, I, us here in the UK, we might think this is kind of like, okay, yeah, that's fine. Of course. But when you're in a country, um, what's a good example? Uh, belarus for instance when there are uh street protests and suddenly the, the you know five hours before the street protest is about to start the gov- um the internet magically shuts off and nobody can get to it um that's a government action that uh is trying to um uh trying to achieve a political aim which is quashing protest and and so yeah,
1: iran turned the internet off yeah. in iran
0: yeah you know, last and, and this happened yeah this happened in iran this happened in tahir square during the during the arab spring um so you know this is happening all the time um and uh and so it's a it's a it's it's something that we really need to think about from a from government standpoint. Sure.
1: Okay. Principle two was keep all of the internet available all of the time. Well, that doesn't look like China
0: is going to play that game. Then. Well, it's sure. funny because we also had in the ethical web principles, and again, where we were coming at it was much more from a what can technologists do. Um, we had a one web. There is one web principle. Um, which is also talking about like we, the web should not be in used, used to enable geographic or political boundaries. And now that is definitely going to be controversial from a China perspective, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. China is not going to be happy with this set of uh, things. Yeah, I think I think what we're looking at is
1: the tension between what is uh, national boundaries, uh, physical national boundaries like land mass boundaries, yeah, and the web, which is going across national boundaries and to what could you could describe as a web citizen who doesn't care what country they're in particularly so i think there is going to be a lot of that tension i don't know how you get get over that anyway we as as i said we're running out of time sadly because there's so much i want to ask you but the third principle is what we've been talking about respect and protect people's fundamental online privacy and data rights so yeah again there's a lot of work to be done there
0: I think one of the things that I'm most interested in in this contract from the web is when it comes to companies. What can companies do? Or I work for a company, so and where I can have the most influence, I feel, is on what my company does and maybe what other companies that are building websites can do. Um, so when we come to principle five, which is respect and protect people's privacy and personal data to build online trust. I think that's hugely important. And there's a lot in there. There's a lot underneath that umbrella. Just underneath that umbrella is where all of the things that we've been talking about in terms of um, privacy-enabling technology, ad blockers, uh, tracking blockers, um, news, uh, fake, fake news uh, extensions, all that kind of stuff, uh, is all underneath the, the area of building that kind of trust by by treating personal data in a private way. And I think that's something that we really need to pay attention to as companies. Okay. Principle
1: four was make the internet affordable and accessible to everyone, which goes against everything you and I just talked about, which well, was subscription-based ad-supported networks going uh, away and going to a paid model.
0: Uh, well, I think well, that's why I'm a little bit uh, iffy on the whole internet moving to the paid model is the, is the answer to everything. I think it's the answer to some things, but I think it also, it also cuts out a whole swath of, of people. I think accessible is a whole different topic, which is about making the web accessible to people with disabilities. Um, and that is something that's also hugely important and something that I do a lot of work with. Um, we just did a whole, uh, we We just participated and sponsored a whole workshop a w three c workshop on how to make immersive environments on the web, so a r and v r type environments that you want to build on the web, augmented reality virtual reality, how to make those accessible to people who might be vis- who might be blind for instance yeah. how, how um, and though that kind of work there 's a lot of work to do there in order to make that uh, to make that happen
1: cool. <laughs> Daniel, sadly, we've run out of time. It always happens when we get to the most interesting part of the conversation. Uh, Daniel, uh, tell me, where can people get hold of you? You know, if they want to find out more of the, your work about the W3C, how can they find you on other places? Give us a, give us a shout.
0: Um, well, if you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, you can follow me at... at Torgo, that's T-O-R-G-O for some reason um, and uh, if you want to follow the work that we're doing in Samsung Internet that's also Samsung Internet on Twitter and also at the URL SamsungInter.net um, the tag work that I talked about in the W3C is, uh, we're also on Twitter at w 3 C tag W3CTAG, W3CTAG. Um, and you can find out about us on W3.org slash tag um, if you want to get in touch with me on Mastodon, by the way, which I strongly encourage, we can talk about that. But there's I hadn't got time. That's a uh, that's a open source federated social network which is growing by leaps and bounds, and you can reach me on Torgo at Mastodon, M-A-S-T-O-D-O-N. dot social. Daniel Applequist, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating talk with you. Thank you. Thank
1: you, Sam. That show was amazing. To listen again, please visit our website, marlofm.co.uk or visit our Facebook group, Sam Talks Technology. And now you can subscribe on iTunes. Never miss a show again.
0: See you next week,
1: same time, same place.